Habakkuk chapter 2. I invite you to turn in your Bibles there. Habakkuk chapter 2. You'll need a Bible as we look at God's Word together. And so these brothers have some. They're going to make their way toward the back. If you need a Bible, get their attention and they'll get that Bible to you. It's marked for you at Habakkuk chapter 2. Our culture has undergone a dramatic change in the last few generations. From the 1960s on, there's been a seismic and negative shift in the way people view the world. The way they think about themselves, the way they think about God, the way they think about others. Because ideas have consequences, we see the result in the behavior of our society. Even our children are reflecting this downward trend. Last month was the one-year anniversary of the school shooting in Parkland, Florida that killed 17 people. In just a two-week period following that incident, there were 41 violent threats against schools in Michigan alone. That's nearly three each day. Now, there's often an uptick in threats after an event as people get the idea implanted, and many of those are pranks. But in the year prior, in the academic year 2017 to 18, there were 3,659 threats and incidents of violence that occurred in American schools. That's about 20 every school day. And so it's becoming all too common now. But in fact, the trend downward has been happening for decades. U.S. News and World Report published a list of responses from public school teachers from the 50s and then again in the 90s, asking them to cite the top seven student behavior problems. In the 50s, the list was talking, chewing gum, making noise, running in the halls, getting out of turn in line, dress code infractions, and not putting paper in the wastebasket. Using the same survey, teachers in the 90s ranked drug abuse, alcohol abuse, pregnancy, suicide, rape, robbery, and assault as the top seven prominent problems. That was from the November 8, 1993 issue of U.S. News. I think you would agree things have not gotten better in the 25 years since. And as a result of that, any sensitive Christian has a righteous indignation at what we see. We know it could be and should be different. And it's hard for us to turn a blind eye to those who are the purveyors of this moral decline. Those of us who have children may well wonder what kind of world they're going to inherit. And so how do you react to what you see going on? I found that the people who are most confident are also the most calm. Now, that confidence can be misplaced, but whether it's justified or not, confidence breeds calm. Confidence breeds calm, and it's trust that breeds that confidence. In whom or in what we trust will determine our level of confidence, both about the present and the future, and that will reveal itself in our attitude in the midst of uncertain and even wicked times. Part of the reason that I've done this series in the book of Habakkuk near the beginning of this year, it's because I'm trying to prepare us for what may be coming. I'm certainly no prophet nor an economist, so I don't know what's going to happen in the next couple of years, of course, but all signs point to an economic downturn. How severe? Time will tell. But most of us remember a very severe recession, the worst, in fact, since the Great Depression just 10 years ago. 
That event underscored the connection between trust and confidence and calm. As financial markets were frantic, stocks tumbled and the entire economy nearly collapsed. Now why? Why did that happen? Well, it's because they had lost confidence in their trading partners on Wall Street. And why was that? Because companies that had in their names words like trust and mutual had shown themselves to in fact be untrustworthy and to not have our mutual benefit in mind. And as a result, there's not this confidence and thus calm. In chapter 3 of Habakkuk, we're going to see in a couple of weeks that it describes a total collapse of the economy, which will in turn help us to prepare for whatever the future holds. But for now, I ask you this. How calm are you today? In what is your confidence placed? In whom do you trust? Last week, we were treated to the excellent preaching of Dr. Combs. We had a break from our current series. But two weeks ago, we saw in verse 4 of chapter 2, the righteous person will live by faith. That is, he or she will live by what they believe. They will live in light of who or what they trust. Habakkuk found himself, as we've seen in previous weeks, living among violence and injustice. We saw that back in chapter 1 in verses 2 and 3, where he said to God, I cry out to you violence because it's all around me. And I'm regularly, he says in verse 3, having to look at injustice. And it appears that those who are perpetrating these evil deeds are, in fact, getting away with it. Who was punished among the thieves on Wall Street who contributed to and precipitated the crash of 2008? I can give you the answer to that. Nobody. And whose companies received bailouts from the government, in fact, as a result? And so Habakkuk asks, as many of us asks, the question that may be on our hearts, how long, O Lord? In chapter 2, God is responding now to Habakkuk's concern. God tells Habakkuk to trust him because the righteous person, my righteous people, will live by faith. But now he tells him more about why he should trust. Namely, because I, God, am on the throne despite how things look. So if you look down in verse 20 of chapter 2, God says, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. In the midst of evil and human uncertainty, God reminded Habakkuk from where his confidence is to come. Namely, the sovereignty of God, the control of God over all that's happening in his world. This righteous God will not leave the guilty unpunished. So you need not despair, but rather you should and must trust. That's what we're going to see today from Habakkuk chapter 2. Let's bow together and ask God to help us as we do. Our Father, here we are having made it through another week in a fallen world. With all of the attendant circumstances that you have assigned to each of us in your sovereignty. Your sovereign control is over all things, not just the good, but also the bad, the difficult, the trials. And so, Lord, help us as your people to remember that and to thank you that we are here. Despite whatever has happened to us this week, you have given us this divine appointment to be here and now to look into your word and to again be reminded of the fact that you are on your throne. 
You're controlling the events of your world. And indeed, you will bring evil to account. Help us then as we look at your word. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. And we have inserted for you in the program an outline. If you don't have that out as yet, please take a look now. And I say, first of all, there that this passage teaches the unrighteous will be judged, certainly. God says of the wicked, and in particular the nation Babylon, that he will enjoy only temporary success in his evil deeds. He will be taunted, it says, with ridicule and scorn, saying this in verse 6 of chapter 2. Woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. How long must this go on? Will not your creditors certainly arise? Will they not wake up and make you tremble? Then you will become their prey. Because you have plundered many nations, the peoples who are left will plunder you. For you have shed human blood, you have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. So verse 6 starts with this word, woe. And when you see in Scripture that word, it signifies judgment. And God uses it five times in the last 15 verses of this chapter, showing that he's not going to allow evil to continue with impunity forever. God said in chapter 1 in verse 6 that he intends to use the Babylonians to punish the wickedness that's occurring among his, God's people. But now he's assuring Habakkuk that he's going to judge the Babylonians as well. As one has said, consider the whole situation from Habakkuk's limited viewpoint. He was painfully aware of the moral crisis in his nation of Judah. His society was crumbling. His people had turned their backs on God. They had walked away from the moral reform that had been instituted years before and it took place under the good king Josiah. God revealed to Habakkuk his plan to allow Babylon to roll into Judah and punish the people of God. From Habakkuk's perspective, Babylon seemed unstoppable. Who was there in the entire world who could stand against such a military might? There was no one. Babylon would defeat even the world power of Egypt, and so they appeared, in fact, unstoppable. And in the face of such distressing circumstances and perplexity and confusion, it would be our natural response, as it was Habakkuk's, to cry out to the Lord, how long are you going to allow this to go on? And now, on top of allowing all this to go on in our nation, you're going to use this even more wicked nation of Babylon? And down through the centuries, there have been those among God's people who have been confused when they looked at their own little slice of history. They've been perplexed when they've seen injustice and great wickedness prevailing. They haven't known what to make of it. Make of it. There's an answer to the difficulties that we see in history, but also in our present day all around us. That answer is all the same at all times, and that is be patient. Believe in the promise of God that evil will not ultimately prevail. The wicked will not stand. We see similar thoughts of despair about the seeming success of the wicked. When the psalmist says in Psalm number 73, I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And throughout that Psalm 73, it contrasts the wicked living lives of luxury without difficulty, without pain and without sorrow And yet all the while, God's people struggle. These two conditions couldn't be reconciled in the psalmist's mind. On the one hand, a good God. On the other hand, the wicked are prospering. 
And so later in that psalm, he says, when I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me. But notice, oppressive to me until I entered the sanctuary of God. And then I understood their final destiny. In the presence of God, being overwhelmed by the greatness, the glory, and the majesty of God, the psalmist regained a proper perspective on his situation. He rediscovered something he hadn't know, had known in the past, but he had forgotten. That the Lord is just. That the Lord indeed will carry out justice. In the end, evil is not and never will be victorious. The wicked will be severely judged. God is saying to Habakkuk that the same is true for the Babylonians. Their wickedness is not going to stand either. And that came to pass as recorded in history, both biblical and secular history. One described it this way. The word of God was fulfilled 70 years after Babylon marched into Judah. 70 years after Habakkuk wrote this little book that we're studying, Babylon actually fell. And Babylon was one of the most short-lived flashes of brilliance in an empire that history records. In less than a hundred years, they rose from obscurity to a, the level of a world power, and then they were annihilated. In fulfillment of God's prediction that Babylon would not stand, history records that two nations, the Medes and the Persians, formed an alliance against them. And under the leadership of a general named Cyrus, the Medo-Persian Empire marched against Babylon. They defeated Babylon on every hand until they pushed the armies of Babylon back into their own fortified capital city, the city of Babylon. Inside that city, there was great wealth and great provision for the future. Inside the walls, they were certain that no one would be able to overwhelm them. We know from history that the river Euphrates flowed underneath the walls of that city. They had an unending supply of water. There was land available for growing crops within those walls. Walls that were so fortified that historians say they actually held chariot races on the top of the city walls. The Babylonians were full of pride and they decided they would throw a party one night in the face of their enemies who were outside the walls who, of course, could not get in. The book of Daniel records for us the drunken orgy that took place in the courts of King Belshazzar while the Medes and the Persians camped outside the city gates. But in fulfillment of God's prophecy, Cyrus had devised a plan. Now, it's hard for us to imagine the manpower that an endeavor like this would take. But the Medo-Persians actually dug a new course for the river Euphrates and diverted it around the city of Babylon. And that night of the drunken revelry thrown by Belshazzar, the water ceased to flow under those walls, and that riverbed was made dry. They had actually tiled the riverbed through the city of Babylon. This allowed a detachment of soldiers from the Medes and Persians to march under the city wall. There they found all of the soldiers were engaged in this revelry. They marched straight to the gates, threw them open. Cyrus marched in with his armies, and Babylon fell. This truth that the wicked will not stand was true of Babylon. And it's also true of every petty tyrant and every petty empire that's risen and fallen in history. 
All of them have been used by God to accomplish his purposes only to be leveled in his due and assigned time. But let's remember this, friends, that it's not just evil out there or back then. That is, other nations now or in the past, but this includes our nation, too. Our nation will be judged for its wickedness and even crimes. Now, I'm going to talk more about those in a bit. And God's judgment on evil is not just applied to nations, but to individuals. Perhaps individuals in your life whose harassment has tormented you in various ways. Please believe your God that no one is ultimately going to get away with it. And so the unrighteous will be judged, certainly. But I say as well in your outline. The unrighteous will be judged accordingly. Each of the five woes pronounced in this passage has a a central theme that's then explained and expanded on in the paragraph in which it's contained. Now, let's quickly see the central themes of each of these pronouncements of judgment. First of all, Babylon was indicted for her greed in verses 6 through 8. Verse 6 says, Woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. And then the central theme of the second woe is found in verse 9, where Babylon's indicted for its injustice. Verse 9 says, Woe to him who builds his house by unjust gain. And then the third woe in verse 12 teaches that Babylon's indicted for her violence. Verse 12 says, Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed. In verse 15, the central theme is that Babylon's indicted for her sensuality. It says, woe to him who gives drink to his neighbors, pouring it from the wineskin till they are drunk so that he can gaze on their naked bodies. And then the central theme of verse 19 is that Babylon is indicted for her idolatry. Woe to him who says to wood, come to life or to lifeless stone, wake up. Can it give guidance? It is covered with gold and silver. There is no breath in it. So here God is invoking the lex talionis, the law of retaliation. In pronouncing that the Babylons will be punished in accordance with their actions. The punishment will fit the crime. In fact, the consequences will be exactly the same as their actions. In verse 8, because Babylon plundered, Babylon will be plundered. In verse 16, they were preoccupied with wine and sex. And we saw in Belshazzar's party that that was what was going on. But notice what's going to happen according to verse 16. You will be filled with shame instead of glory. Now it's your turn. Drink and let your nakedness be exposed. So friends, this is an inviolable principle in the word of God. Given in Galatians chapter 6, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whatever one reaps, sows they, they reap. We call it spiritual cause and effect. Now, I said earlier that this is not just about other countries in the past or present, but we need to realize it also applies to our own country for its sins, past and present. The United States of America will be judged for its sins. Israel and Judah were God's people as nations, and they were often judged. 
We are not a nation of God's people in the biblical sense of a theocracy where the spiritual and the political are combined. That is, contrary to much that you hear on so-called Christian radio, America is not God's chosen nation, and we are not God's chosen people. Now, let me warn you, if you haven't caught on already, that I'm going to wax a bit political as I seek to make application of these biblical principles. We are a blessed nation, to be sure. Blessing that, of course, we nor any other people deserves. And the USA has been a blessing to other nations over many, many years. There is no country that I would rather have been born to than this one. And as far as I'm aware, there is no history of any nation that's superior to ours. I believe that in many respects, in the words of America, the beautiful God has indeed crowned our good with brotherhood from sea to shining sea. And any telling of the history of America, if it's going to be accurate, must include the truth about the surpassing goodness of our system and many of our policies. But from what I experienced as a college student many years ago, initially enrolled as a political science major, and now what I read about of our colleges and universities, our young people are getting an inaccurate view of their country in liberal arts courses. By the time you're halfway through an American history course, for instance, you can easily come away with a false notion that we're a horrible nation as our sins and wrongs dominate. But please understand this. In the context of history or social studies or anything else, a skewed narrative is a false narrative. And to the extent that any presentation does not give due weight and considerable weight to the good of our country, it's then false. Anything less than the whole truth is not, in fact, the truth. Now, having said that, it goes both ways. Certainly, to ignore the failures of the past and the present is to give a false impression as well. So you can give a false, a skewed narrative both ways, right? You can fail to recount and recount regularly the blessing that God has bestowed on this nation and the good that this nation is and has done for the world. You can do that, but you can also ignore the failures of the past and of the present. You know, there was a day when children could go to school and not learn much at all about our racial history. And to that extent, those children were lied to about who we are. It's a false narrative. And it's not just racial history. But related is economic history and exploitation, not only at home, but abroad. A good bit of the wealth that we enjoy was produced on the backs of the vulnerable and exploited. And greedy corporations and politicians have paved the way for it to prosper. For instance, did you know that Banana Republic is not just a retail store? At a mall and online. The phrase banana republic was actually coined by the American author O. Henry to describe countries in Central America who were entirely dependent on one product that was exported to the United States with the literal fruits of that exploited labor going to American companies like United Fruit. You can Google United Fruit and Banana Republic. 
the fruits of that exploited labor going to companies like American Fruit and American consumers like you and me. And so a truthful understanding of who we are must include those truths as well as things like slavery and, yes, its ongoing legacy. When we talk about God judging America for its sins, when we as Christians do that, we usually mean abortion and sexual perversion and the like. All of that is true. But many of the other indictments against Babylon and its military and economic exploitation of other nations could be applied to us as well. We need to understand that. I heard one preacher say years ago, if God does not judge America, he will owe Sodom and Gomorrah an apology for its sensuality. But if God does not judge America as well for some of these sins of the past and even in the present, he will owe places like Babylon an apology too. So friends, where is your trust? Where is your confidence? The unrighteous will be judged certainly and accordingly. And thirdly, the righteous will be vindicated gloriously. In the midst of all this darkness, there is a brilliant ray of light. Verse 14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now, God has just pronounced woe upon Babylon for building a city with violence, with bloodshed, and establishing towns because of her crime. Verse 13, has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labor is only fuel for the fire, that the nations exhaust themselves for nothing? That means that God has established the limits of the rule of Babylon, that Babylon's reign will only be temporary, and that they'll only be able to function within God's allowed limits. And then verse 14 follows closely on that. Babylon will not be able to continue because there's coming a day when God will set up his eternal kingdom, a kingdom that will have no boundaries. There's coming a day when the entire world will see him and understand his glory. Thanks be to God. You don't, don't you look forward to that. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. That Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Two weeks ago, we saw that God contrasted two ways of life. We saw in verse 4 that Babylon was wicked and not upright, but that on the other hand, God's people, the just, live by faith. And friends, those are representative of the only two categories of individuals in the whole world. Those who live by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and those who follow in the footsteps of Babylon. There are no alternatives in between. The Word of God tells us that the wicked will fall, yet those who live for Christ will triumph. Those are the only options. And so I ask you to consider on whose side are you on. The unrighteous will be judged certainly and accordingly, but the righteous will be vindicated gloriously. And then lastly, the Lord will be recognized universally. So what is the significance of the statement in verse 20 that we read toward the beginning? The Lord is in his holy temple. Well, notice the verse begins, verse 20, with the word but. 
It's making a contrast between the idolatry of Babylon in verses 18 and 19 and the fact that God is in his holy temple. So verse 18, of what value is an idol since a man has carved it or an image that teaches lies? For he who makes it trusts in his own creation. He makes idols that cannot speak. Verse 19, woe to him who says to wood, come to life or to lifeless stone, wake up. Can it give guidance? It's covered with gold and silver. There's no breath in it. And so it contrasts the God of Judah with the gods of Babylon. It teaches, first of all, that in contrast to those false gods, our God lives. He's in his holy temple. He is on his throne. He lives. But secondly, it teaches that in contrast to all false gods, our God, because he lives, can truly hear. Verse 19, you say to wood, come to life, lifeless stone, wake up. But those gods cannot hear. And in contrast to that, our God does hear. And then thirdly, the third contrast is not only does God hear, but God speaks. Verse 19 asks, can their gods give guidance? Their gods cannot guide, but ours does because he speaks and he gives us his direction by his speaking. And thanks be to him, we have it in his word. Many of you know a bit of American history and you know the Civil War. And you know that our president and by most accounts, our greatest president was Abraham Lincoln during that time. Lincoln was reelected in 1864. He gave his second inaugural address, which is considered a classic of rhetoric. I'm going to read from it in just a bit. But shortly thereafter, of course, he was felled by an assassin's bullet. But in March of 1865, President Lincoln was inaugurated after being elected for a second term. His first term had been devoted entirely to overseeing the war between the states, the Civil War. In the early part of 65, it was clear that the war was coming to a close. And in fact, it would end the following month. Lincoln knew that trust and confidence and calm, what I talked about at the beginning of this message, he knew that that had been shattered and needed to be restored. But that trust has been shattered. So in whom or in what can we trust and thus restore the confidence and calm? And here's what he said. The Almighty has his own purposes. And then he quoted Jesus in Matthew 18. Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come. But woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. If we shall suppose that American slavery is one of those offenses which in the providence of God must needs come, but which having continued through his appointed time, he now wills to remove. And that he gives to both north and south this terrible war as the woe due to those whom the offense came. Shall we discern therein any departure from those divine attributes which the believers and the living God always ascribe to him? He's simply saying this is the way God works. He punishes evil. And he he has now punished evil in, in us. But he goes on to say fondly do we hope. 
Fervently do we pray that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled by the bondsman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk. And until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword. As was said 3,000 years ago, so still it must be said, quoting scripture, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous Altogether. You see, he turned himself and he turned the nation to confidence in whom? In God. And that trust and that confidence brought calm. Calm to him and in turn to the nation, he concluded with malice toward none. And charity for all with firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right. Let us strive on to finish the work we are in. To bind up the nation's wounds. To care for him who shall born the battle and for his widow and his orphan. To do all which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. Oh, how we need someone like that today. But friends, we need in our souls and our hearts. A trust, a confidence in the true and living God. Because we trust in Him, because our confidence is in Him, it gives us a calmness in the midst of whatever comes our, our way. That's God, what God was teaching Habakkuk. God is still at work and God is going to judge evil, but in His time and in the meantime, you trust me and thus can be calm. Here's your take-home truth. Believers can rest assured... That the books of life will be balanced because God has guaranteed it. Now we're going to have our closing song in just a, just a bit. But before we bow in prayer and then have our closing song, I want to give you opportunity to trust this true and living God. Because remember, there are only two types of people. The people who live by faith Trust, believing in who God is and what God has done, and then people who believe in something else or someone else and pursue their lives accordingly. Nothing in between. And everyone is going to be judged by this true and living God. And everything that you have done and that I have done, that the Bible calls sin, is liable to judgment before this living and holy God. Liable to judgment. If God were to recall everything that you have done, There's no way in eternity that you would be able to pay for it. As a matter of fact, even one sin against an infinitely holy God is enough for us to be punished for that sin forever because it's an infinite offense. Do you understand that? So you cannot pay for your own sin. Thanks be to God, he has punished that sin in God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has come as a substitute for you and for me. So the God will punish evil, but for the believer, he has punished that evil in Jesus. And God applies the payment that Jesus made on the cross to all of our sin, past, present, and future, to us individually when we come to him believing who he is and what he has done for us. Not only does he apply that death on the cross, he applies the perfectly righteous life of Jesus to us in that sacred moment as well. So if you're a believer, you have that. Thank God. If you're not, then you're liable for the punishment of your own sin. Do you understand that? 
And God will punish evil. And so we offer you the opportunity to trust him. We're going to pray in just a moment. And as we do, you acknowledge to God that you realize that you're a sinner. That you recognize that Christ is your hope. He died on the cross for your sin, having preceded that death on the cross by a perfectly righteous life. You realize you're a sinner, recognize that Jesus died for your sin, and you repent. You say, Lord, I'm going to go your way, no longer my way. I give my life to you, and you receive Jesus Christ into your life. When we bow and pray, from your heart to God, in your own words, you say to him, I'm a sinner, Jesus, and the only hope to pay for my sin. I ask you to apply what he has done to me personally, and I give my life to you. Let's bow before the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we thank you again for gathering us. We thank you for reminding us in your word of who you are. That you are in your holy temple. That you are on your throne. That we have nothing to add to your plan. That there is no way that we can instruct you so that it's done better. There can be no improvement upon the omniscience of our God and the, the wisdom that you bring to everything that you do. And so we are silent before you other than to praise you for who you are and what you have done. So, Lord, we don't instruct you, we learn from you. We thank you for letting us sit at your feet and to hear from your word what you say about what you are doing in your world and that you are going to punish every vestige of evil in your world until it's entirely gone and you inaugurate your kingdom where there is no sin and no effects of sin. Oh, Lord Jesus, come quickly. In the meantime, Lord, we seek to give your message, your gospel, your good news to all of those who come within the sound of our our, mess, our, our preaching. Lord, we ask you to graciously move upon the hearts of some in this room today who perhaps have never come to you, have never appropriated the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ and his perfect life and his death to themselves personally. Bring them to yourself, we ask you, as you've done with so many of us. And begin your work of renewal in them from the inside out. And Lord, for those of us who are your people and who are named by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, Help us to live that way this week. Help us to live confident that in the midst of all of the difficulty and all of the evil, even perhaps evil people that are involved directly in our lives, that evil will not stand. That you are at work and you will accomplish that work in your world and in those, in every person individually. And help us then to have the calm that should characterize your people. And show that we belong to you and thereby bring glory to you. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.